You're listening to Monocle's House View, first broadcast on the 1st of February 2020 on Monocle 24. It's Saturday, the 1st of February. This is Monocle's House View. Today... Five, four, three, two, one... Today is the first day of the rest of our lives outside the European Union. So what is Britain's new reality? Plus, is age really just a number, despite concerns that Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders may be a little too advanced in years to take a seat in the White House? They're both leading the polls ahead of the Iowa caucus. All that and the day's newspapers too. Monocle's House View starts now. Good morning, I'm Georgina Godwin, coming to you live from Midori House in London. Uh, the clock struck 12, and then there were 27. The story of Britain's membership of the European Union finally came to an end last night. Some were celebrating, but there was no such excitement in Brussels. Just a few quiet maintenance workers to take down the Union Jack flags after hours, with one taken to the EU's museum to begin its afterlife as a relic of history. So this is our new reality. Well, here to discuss it with me, my two guests in the studio, the columnist Mary Dujewski uh, and Russia's expert uh, and uh, Vincent Makovini, who is a broadcaster for Euronews. And Vinny, you have been not only following the story since the very beginning of seven years or whatever it is, but actually you spent all of yesterday broadcasting about it up until midnight. Yeah, that's right. I was down in Westminster last night broadcasting uh, from sort of lunchtime until midnight. So I did before and after the UK left. And it was quite an extraordinary moment. And I think, you know, I've spent the last seven years uh, going across this country to all four nations, week in, week out, speaking to people about Brexit. And my feeling waking up this morning is I can't think of two people on the Remain side, two people on the Leave side, who had the same feelings about it, told me their reasonings as being the same. This is a country that, you know, we keep saying it's fractured. It's fractured uh, and split uh, you know, it, it's fractured and split sort of families, friendship groups, workers. It isn't divided. It's it's totally shattered. Everyone's feelings this morning are all over the place on what should happen now. It's not clear that it's two sides. Even speaking to people down there last night, no one was, you know, people were very gave strange answers about why they did it and what they want to happen now. A lot of the people down there, and it has to be said, the majority Brexiteers, couldn't clearly tell me what they wanted from a trade agreement now. And the task for Boris Johnson, who is, you know, a, a campaigner, he has been a campaigner for six months whilst he's been Prime Minister so far, it's time for him to step up to be a statesman and show leadership, not only here at home to try and bring a country together, but around the world, because it is all on him now. There is no blaming the EU. It will no longer be a whipping boy for Tory and Labour governments. It is all down to what he does in the next 11 months as to what happens in this country for the next few decades. Mary Kenny Hackett. Well, um, I maybe have a little more confidence um, in Boris Johnson in this particular respect um, than quite a lot of other people. Um, I think that so far, um, both through the Tory leadership campaign and since since the election especially, um, he's shown a degree of 
discipline, um, which I think is, um, I think very few people expected um, of Boris Johnson. Um, I think at the same time that um, one of the things that I found so interesting about um, yesterday evening, um, and I too was down in Parliament Square and it was the most extraordinary atmosphere, um, was that Boris Johnson was actually conspicuous by his absence. He put his address to the nation on Facebook and he left it to broadcasters as to whether they put it out um, and how they put it out. Um, it hadn't been um, liaised with any of the um, main British broadcasters. It was done from Downing Street, apparently to um, prevent leaks. But the tone of that was very statesmanlike. Um, but it wasn't. It wasn't immediately apparent. If you were in Westminster last night, the show was Nigel Farage's, and you saw him on screen. He got fantastic cheers, and his speech on the one hand was completely uncompromising. He said, "We have taken on the establishment. We have won." At the same time, he quoted Tony Blair. And when he mentioned Tony Blair, there was this enormous boo went all around Parliament Square. But then he said, sort of, stop. What Tony Blair has said today is that it's happened, it's over, we've got to make the best of it. Um, and then the mood slightly changed. But it did seem to me that, you know, while, yes, the country is still hugely divided, nonetheless, there are these little sort of... Um, Degrees of sensitivity, I would say, on both sides, um, which I think that some of the divisions at least were purged by the very conclusive result of the election. Mm. I mean, I think that, that, that it's, a, it's a big problem for, for people who are Remainers who want to be proved right, uh, because by being proved right, of course, Britain then goes into absolute decline and nobody wants that for their country. Yeah, I mean, that that's right. And I think it's going to be really interesting to see uh, figures for people in sort of top tier professions uh, and young graduates as well, uh, whether or not they decide to stick around and stay in the UK. And to do that, if they feel in the next few months that things are going wrong, uh, you know, under a Conservative government, then they might decide that, you know, they will make avail of the opportunities they can and go to other places. Because, you know, one of the things that will come up in negotiations, particularly with Commonwealth countries like Canada, like Australians, Zealand, is the kind of arrangements for people to be able to travel between those countries. And I think if we see, as we already see in the medical profession, a mass flight of professionals out of this country, then that will cause real problems. But just to pick up, I will say on, on the point of Boris Johnson last night, I think that pre-recorded message is dangerous foretelling of what he will do in office. Because his and Dominic Cummings' strategy now is that they do not need to be accountable to the media because they have these channels. Yeah. They sent us the the We Transfer link at 4pm. You know, we watched it and, you know, he is going to start a full frontal attack on the BBC this week as a distraction. The BBC will become the new whipping boy whilst he tries to sort out other problems. And I think it's really dangerous for politicians to... And I, I commend the broadcasters last night for, you know, the pool arrangement is this miracle of the broadcasting world that we don't talk about. It's basically everyone taking turns, sharing the material, agreeing on the questions beforehand that are asked. I've, I've you know, spent my life doing pool arrangements. Um and I think it's dangerous because what it means, and especially with this Facebook, you know, Q&A, people's question time that he does, 
all of those questions are vetted and a lot of them are nonsense, kind of jovial things. And if he's doing statements like this, it stops scrutiny of what is going on by asking questions. And I think he also, just on a presentational point, last night, obviously, he wasn't going to take questions. But on a presentational point, the drama of live TV in a historic moment was lost in that in that little video. It was flat. Mm, Mary? I slightly disagree, at least with the principle. I think it's very interesting to watch um, a journalist. After all, Boris Johnson is a journalist um, and he knows um, how things work from the inside. He knows the tricks of the trade. And what we're watching is a prime minister and Downing Street basically taking charge of the message. Um, and personally, I have huge misgivings about the lobby system. Now, I mean, the pool system is slightly different from from the lobby system. Um, but the lobby system... Explain which it is, for, for our... The lobby system, which is basically a closed group of journalists who are attached to... Um, to the, basically the political establishment. They've got passes into Parliament and generally um, they cover one or other of the leading politicians, so um, the Prime Minister or the leader of the opposition or whatever, and the responsibilities are shared out. Um, but the solidarity of the lobby, um, which um, there's been a tradition that um, briefings from Downing Street are basically closed to other journalists. They're, they're just for the lobby journalists. Um, in the past, there's been a lot, of, especially under Alastair Campbell, when Blair was prime minister, um, there was a lot of, um, as it were, um, bartering between the sides and favourites. And what that meant was that Downing Street could basically dispense favours in return for um, positive coverage, um, which, to my mind, is a corrupt system. Same thing happens, by the way, with the um, with the White House press corps. Um, but the the interesting thing watching Boris Johnson operate, yes, you can see that from from one angle, um, it's disadvantageous to journalists to have a prime minister who is basically doing his own thing, putting out his message on his terms. On the other hand. What, to my mind, was the corruption and closed nature of the lobby system by which the journalists, after the briefings, got together in a huddle and basically decided what were the key quotes, what were the messages that they want to get out as opposed to necessarily the um, the prime minister or the leader of the opposition wants to get out. Um, I think it's not a bad idea to have some of that at least shaken up. I t- you know what? I've been in the lobby for a couple of years and I totally agree. When I first got into the lobby, I was slightly bewildered by the way it operates. And you're slightly separate because as a broadcaster, there's the print hacks and there's the broadcast hacks. And it is a group. I mean, it does, it, you know, it gives you access. You fly with the prime minister on their plane. You get these briefings. But it has these funny rules and it takes a while for it to sink in and say like, well, it's only a kind of gentleman's agreement of these rules. And it, there are problems with it. There was actually a fantastic piece written yesterday on The Critic, um, a website by a former lobby hack who was in the Blair years when it was called a feral beast by Tony Blair and now saying it is, you know, it's the system is broken. And I would agree that I think there are real issues with it and particularly the makeup of it. Because I now understand from being in the lobby, there's all these photographs on the wall in the parliamentary press gallery of lobbies gone by. They're white they're male, they're older. You understand why key issues in this country about childcare, about women's rights, about education, things that, frankly, male journalists 
aren't that interested in, never got asked. I actually think that in that particular respect, it's got even worse over the years. Well, there are more women, not minorities. I I remember in the the 90s, there were real efforts made, um, and especially in the press, um, if... Um, newspaper had maybe three political correspondents. Um, one of them, at least, it, w- it was a sort of matter of shame if one of them at least wasn't a woman. Um, but it seems to me that that's actually, in recent years, that's actually gone backwards rather than forwards. Um, and there's fewer women being political commentators and political correspondents in the lobby than there actually were 10, mm. 15 years ago. Let's stick with being pale, male and stale. <laughs> no one likes to be told that they're too old for anything. But age is likely to be a factor in this year's US election. Bernie Sanders and Joe Biden aren't exactly young. Some say that makes them an unfit choice to occupy the Oval Office for eight years. And as Joe Biden showed this week, he isn't afraid of addressing the issue. I can think of at least eight women and at least four or five people of colour that I think are totally qualified to be Vice President of the United States. But for me, it has to be demonstrated that whomever I pick is two things. One is capable of immediately being president because I'm an old guy. Well, that's quite alarming for some, isn't it? I mean, both Biden and Sanders are leading the polls ahead of the Iowa caucus on Monday. Do voters care about age as much as we might think? I mean, Mary, you're talking about the lobby, but but does anyone care? I sort of think that if that same scenario were transposed to Europe, people would care and it would be an issue. And I don't really understand why it isn't an issue, in, or it appears not to be, in the United States. Um, one reason may be that... Um, Ronald Reagan, when he was campaigning, had this wonderful um, riposte when he was challenged on age and he basically said that he didn't want it to be held against his um, more youthful opponent, that he was he was relatively young. Um, but for a country like America, which when you, when, when you look across from Europe, you regard it as a young country, um, to have basically elderly men um, as the front runners for, 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 for the presidency and to have Trump elected um, as president when it looked well, quite doubtful whether he would actually uh, manage to serve eight years if he got a second term. Um, I, you know, I just remember I, I, I was in Washington um, when um, Clinton announced that Bill Clinton announced that his running mate was going to be Al Gore. And there was enormous surprise because people had expected somebody who was basically a, um, a state governor um, without experience of Washington, um, that he was going to appoint somebody who was an old stager who would, as it were, give gravitas and experience to the ticket. And when he chose Al Gore, actually the, um, the, the, the impression created by that ticket of two relatively young men campaigning together. It was rather like the impression of um, David Cameron and Nick Clegg when they, when they were heading the coalition. Um, that, you know, you did feel that here it was, that, that there was sort of youth, there was vibrancy, there, were, the, the, there was a sense of purpose. Um, and it created quite, a, quite an impression. Mm. So it's very strange to me to see the United States really going backward on this. Vinnie, what do you think? Do, do voters in the US care? 
I think it is important. I mean, it's funny. I was thinking about, you know, talking about that ticket, that campaign song, Don't Stop Thinking About Tomorrow. We have this idea that if you have more tomorrows ahead of you on paper, you're more invested in kind of what you're kind of doing and, you know, because you, you'll live to see more of your legacy and things like that. I think there was for a, a long time a generation of a Kennedy-esque young leader father being the ideal candidate thought of. So that's where you get people like Tony Blair here in the UK, where you get David Cameron, Nick Clegg, as you say. Uh, and then, you know, what I think is more interesting is society, we kind of have to start separating age from fitness because, you know, people are living longer than ever. And the way that you live has an impact on when you're in your 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, the condition that you are in mentally and physically, because you meet people in their 80s and 90s who are incredibly sharp, have their full faculties. It is about health and fitness. And I, the most remarkable thing for me is that Bernie Sanders had a heart attack yes. and major <laughs> surgery, and it has no <laughs> impact. In, I mean, in times gone by, that would have absolutely taken you out of the race. Yeah. But it has no impact, because what you're thinking, is okay this person he obviously still has his faculties but is his health going to hold up for eight possible years that really is the question and i've been fascinated in this in this campaign by watching pete Buttigieg, um who is 37 he is the first millennial to run for president you know and he talks about a kind of generational thing of being the generation that grew up with mass school shootings the generation that grew up you know having to pay baby boomers large pensions, pensions that we'll never receive, having to retire at a much earlier age. And I'm kind of tired of kind of younger people's concerns being dismissed now because millennials are, you know, people now basically up to the age of 40. This is the working population who are trying to say you know, things aren't quite right. So I'm interested to see how he is in a very nuanced way putting forward arguments of, you know, I'm the generation that you deployed to these Middle Eastern wars. And I look around at my friends who some of them were physically maimed, mentally maimed. I think it's really interesting to have this younger voice coming through as well. I also think that um, even though people are living longer and retain their faculties in many cases um, very, very long time, nonetheless, um, when you look at Donald Trump or you remember Ronald Reagan in his latter years um, and it appears that he was already suffering signs of dementia and you look at some of Donald Trump's press conferences that I've watched it does not give you confidence, or no. it doesn't give me confidence, <laughs> no. that he can last another four years. And in fact, I would go out on a slight limb here. Uh, I just wonder whether he's actually fit enough to contest the presidency this time around. I wouldn't be surprised if maybe at a relatively late stage, um, he or the people around him decide that um, ill health is maybe going to curtail a, sec a bid for a, a second term. Do you think that there might be some kind of deal going on? In other words, look, we won't let this impeachment happen, but you can't run again? Vinny? I mean, I'd, I'd be pretty shocked because I just think that it's, you know, the the kind of cult-like mentality has taken over. Um, I, I, I mean, I think he will run again. But I think 
you know, it's, it's interesting when you're when you're up close with world leaders. I mean, they are so bubbled and cocooned. And, you know, we're not saying can they run a marathon or not tomorrow. They are lifted and laid. Their meals are provided. There's a lot of, you know, Obama had this thing of he needed to reduce the number of decisions in his personal life in order to have the capacity to make those big decisions. So he wore the same two colors of suits. He kept to the same kind of schedule of food. You know, reviewed, you know, it is a kind of very costed but cushy life being mm. a world leader. And it doesn't require Required that much physical fitness, but the you know the mental fitness thing is interesting, and I think you know Donald Trump. If you've ever you know watched someone who or known someone who does start to lose their mental faculties, all the signs are there. The way in recent you know he starts slurring his words more in these big addresses, uh, and you know he's it was already under question and people who have worked for him John Bolton this week's come out and said you know in his book uh, you know I don't think he's got the mental uh, faculties anymore is no. there something wrong there yeah no mm. I, mean, I agree with you completely I mean uh, it's 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 very interesting to see the other person of course who's knocked uh, who's who's not doing as well as as uh, Sanders uh, and Biden but certainly has the campaign funds is uh, Michael Bloomberg um, also of an age but massively wealthy what yeah, hugely wealthy. And it's raising a really ugly issue for the Democrats because he came in late. He's spending hundreds of millions of dollars of his own money on this campaign and, uh, you know, buying so much advertising time. I, I you know, work in a, in a US newsroom and I see US TV on all these screens and his adverts are always on. And he will buy the most expensive advertising in the world tomorrow, which is the um, Super Bowl. He is buying, you know, 30 seconds of advertising, which costs $6 million. Donald Trump is also doing this. Um, but it's a question of, you know, the the candidates of colour in the US race, so thinking about Cory Booker, thinking about Kamala Harris, thinking, you know, have dropped out because of the issue of money. And it's meant that you are left with a stage now where there's, you know, there's one candidate, I think Andrew Yang is the last candidate of colour left. Julian Castro also dropped out. He isn't getting on the stage. He's not dropped out, but he's not getting on the stage because he hasn't got the money that he needs and the donations. But there's questions now about letting Michael Bloomberg onto the next debate. And he's effectively bought his way on, even though he doesn't match the criteria they were previously setting. Yeah. And that's a really difficult issue to contend with, you know, that you're kind of this old white privileged man. And you've bought your way onto this stage. But I mean, I think there's two really quite separate questions here. One of them is the role of money in American politics, which again, I mean, it just seems to me to be naked corruption, mm. um, that you can actually buy your way into, into politics. Indeed, you're expected to, and the system actually relies on that. The second thing to say is that, is it actually better or worse for somebody who is independently wealthy using and relying on their own resources to campaign than the sort of quid pro quos that are going on all the time behind the scenes from would-be politicians at any level in America, um, that they're having to ingratiate themselves with all sorts of different lobbies just in order to get the funds to carry on their campaigns. Mm. Um, so you could make an argument to say that somebody like Donald Trump, somebody like Michael Bloomberg, is actually being slightly more honest and less corrupt um, than the others because they're less beholden. And just as a footnote to that, um, in the past it was always said that whoever raised the most money, spent the most money, had basically bought the presidency. The last election, that wasn't true. Hillary Clinton had far more money, had raised far more money than Donald Trump did. 
Mm. Uh, just speaking of, of Clinton, and just quickly before we get on to the newspapers, uh, Vinny, we were looking at a clip earlier on uh, and uh, uh, seeing seeing that that the squad, as, as they call them, mm. that those 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 young women of colour who uh, are, are doing fantastically in in in, in uh, on on the Democrat side, uh, but actually not exhibiting great sisterhood feelings. Yeah, I mean, this was a rally last night for um, Bernie Sanders in in Iowa and Hillary Clinton. Clinton's name gets mentioned and the the crowd start to boo because she has been slightly critical of Bernie Sanders. And it's the same thing that Joe Biden is saying is that, like, he's not a Democrat. You know, he's not a registered Democrat. He comes in, he registers just to be able to run. You know, they have found him to be kind of, you know, they've known him for a long time. And, and so this was the criticism that she was making about this. You know, why, why is he not a full Democrat? He hasn't actually achieved that much. Um but so when Hillary's name is mentioned, the crowd boos. One of the members of the squad shuts it down. But then another one says, no, let's boo her. Let's, you know, let's boo her because she'll get her lesson on, on Monday. And you just think, you know, that's there's enough people attacking your party on the outside for one without you attacking yeah. each other. We saw the exact same thing in the past five years with Jeremy Corbyn in this country. Any time, you know, he taught, you know, he couldn't even bring himself to admit for a long time that the Labour government from 97 to 2010 had any achievements and his, you know, his supporters would boo the mere men- mention of Blair or Brown. And, you know, we know that that doesn't work and it's quite unedifying, especially, you know, seeing women take on, you know, a woman who served the nation as first lady, as secretary of state, was the first woman to get to the top of the ticket who actually won the popular vote by three million, but for the ludicrous electoral college system is not in the White House. Absolutely. We must get on to the newspapers. We've only got five minutes left. Uh, This is Monocle Houseview. We are live from London. Tomorrow we'll be live from Zurich. I'm Georgina Godwin, still with me, Mary Dijewski and Vincent McAvinney. And speaking of age, but the thing is, we could all go at any time, couldn't we? Particularly if we contract coronavirus. there is such a fantastic picture in today's times. Mary, would you just describe to us what we're seeing here? <laughs> yes, what we're seeing here is one of the coaches um, that is taking some of the 80-odd um, Britons who were evacuated from Wuhan um, in the last 48 hours. And they're taking them from a military airport um, to a, um, a quarantine uh, sort of quarters um, where they're going to be quarantined for two weeks. And this coach, obviously, um, huge precautions have been taken um, to make sure that um, everybody's safe and they're all quarantined and all the rest of it. And what you've got is you've got some of the passengers, um, some of the evacuees who are who've got um, those masks on. You've got other people who, <coughs> apparently, the medical staff who are in sort of um, full um, decontamination detox kit, um, and then you have the happy driver at the front who is um, looking extremely cheerful to be driving driving this coach um, who has absolutely no sign um, (laughs) of anything to do with quarantine, toxins, anything. He is completely unprotected by anything and apparently um, unconcerned about it. Billy, it's extraordinary, isn't it? It is remarkable. I mean, we charter a 747 to fly these people back from Wuhan, uh, you know, with these medical teams from the MOD. We've, you know, they'll be in quarantine for two weeks in this NHS accommodation block, um, which 
It's pretty grim. Um, and, you know, you've just got this bus driver, arms folded, waistcoat on, like, well, you know, it's not going to bother me. Um, <laughs> it's just quite a remarkable, you know, it feels very British that we go to all of this <laughs> contingency planning to get these people home. And then it's just like, did anyone think about a suit for these guys? No? OK, let's uh, just It drive. also has to be said that apparently the drivers are volunteers um, and they're also going to be given um, two weeks of leave after it. Um, but, of course, that leave will be in sort of quasi-current quarantine too. Yes, and just looking at the people coming off the plane, you've got the ground staff also standing there <laughs> with absolutely no protection on at all. Just speaking of masks, we don't have very much time, but can I just show you mine? Oh, wow. I mean, am I being paranoid? Now, the reason, one of the reasons I have that is that I have a cold and I feel like, particularly now, nobody wants to get it from you. So. Mm. <laughs> and I also, I'm about to get on a plane and I think it's, it's but can they help you? I mean, I mean, there's a thing here saying that they have sold out but are unlikely to stop yes. germs. So it is, you know, it is a thing in Asian cultures. They wear them because if you have a cold, you don't want to spread it. It's not about picking up from others. It's about yeah. spreading from yourself. It kind of more is a block of spreading it um, yourself. But yeah, there's another interesting point as well is that Chinatown in London, which is normally booming, uh, is very quiet at the moment as a reaction to this. All the restaurants are empty, people not going there, which is, um, you know, a kind of repercussion of this as well. Yeah. And there are some reports too of, of, of horror horrible racist incidents against Chinese people, I understand. Yes, and I was interested because it had actually never occurred to me, but quite soon after um, after the, the news of the, um, the start of the epidemic came out, um, there were a few comments um, about the number of Chinese students in British universities. And the sort of, the, the unspoken link was that actually they were going to be quite at risk of, of being ostracised and kept at a distance um, by their British uh, by, by their fellow British students mm. um, and you know that is it, it's a classic sort of phenomenon down the ages um, but still it hadn't occurred to me and I think it's a very malign development really. yeah well I wish you both good health <laughs> uh, thank you so much for coming in Vincent McAvinney and Mary Dijewski uh, that's all for today our supervising producer was Ben Ryland our researcher was Tia Thomas-Alexander and our studio manager was Nora Hall. Uh, I'm Georgina Godwin. As I say, this show will come from Zurich at the same time tomorrow. Do join me then. And if you're in Zurich, do pop down to Dürfestrasse 90. We'd love to meet you. Thank you for listening. <laughs>